Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 22, Numbers chapters 16, 17, and 18, the second continuation. Now last week, we watched as the rebels of Israel were annihilated by two means. First, fire coming from the Lord to destroy those 250 tribal leaders plus Korah, the main instigator of the rebellion. And second, from an earthquake that opened up a huge split in the earth, whereby Datan, Aviram, and all their followers plunged into it. Well, here as we study Numbers chapter 16, 17, and 18, we found that on the surface, the rebellion was about a group of men who wanted Moses and Aaron's jobs. But underneath it all was that the rebels believed that neither a mediator nor a high priest was needed to represent the people of God. And folks, right there is the stumbling block that the entire human population faces right on up till today. Moses and Aaron were the point of the argument. Then, our combined mediator and high priest, Yeshua, is the point of that argument today. You know, it's amazing how many so-called spiritual people say there is simply no need for a mediator, that they can and have earned the right to be in God's presence. Usually they verbalize this by saying that I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. Some time ago, when I lived in the Keys, I went on a very interesting series of home visitations. Boy, you want to run into some characters. Just spend a little time in the Keys, by the way. I love them, by the way. I love characters. Don't know why. Um, but I went along with this really wonderful assistant pastor, one of the nicest men I'd ever met. And, and, and we had a, I had a first-hand look at this stumbling block in action. And I would say that of the many homes that we visited and the many people we shared the gospel with, only a tiny fraction denied that there was a God. Okay. Yet when they were asked if they thought they were going to heaven... The majority of those who said they did believe in God said yes. They did think they were going to heaven. Reason? I've done more good things than bad things. And a few of these people listened to what we had to say. Thank God. Accepted the need for a savior, for a mediator. His name is Jesus. But most of them insisted they did not need a Savior. They could do it themselves. This is exactly what Korah, Datan, and Abiram, and all those rebellious followers were declaring. We can do it ourselves. Our way. We can choose to be holy. We can declare ourselves holy. Well, then when God destroyed all those rebels, many of the people of Israel, friends and relatives of the now deceased, turned around and blamed Moses and Aaron for it. 
They decided that Moses and Aaron had caused all this death when in fact they had actually pleaded to God for for mercy for these rebels. And Moses and Aaron were thought to have caused the fire, thought to have caused that big earthquake by manipulating God to do it for them. So although the terrifying demonstration of divine wrath had indeed destroyed many rebels, or many rebels, the rebellious mindset of Israel still remained intact. Well, God was about to spring into action again. Pick up your Bibles. We're going to continue at Numbers 17.9. We're going to go all the way through 18 tonight, so we're going to do a lot of reading. Numbers chapter 9, page 169 of your complete Jewish Bible. Adonai said to Moses, get away from this assembly and I'm going to destroy them at once. But they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, take your fire pan, put fire from the altar and it, lay incense on it. Hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them because anger has gone out from Adonai and the plague has already begun. And Aaron took it and as Moses had said, he ran into the middle of the assembly and there the plague had already begun among the people. But he added the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stopped. Now those dying from the plague numbered 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and the plague was stopped. And Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, take from them staffs, one for each ancestral tribe, from each leader of a tribe, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For each tribe's leader is to have one staff. Put them in the tent of meeting in the front of the testimony where I will meet you. The staff of the man I'm going to choose will sprout buds. And in this way I will put a stop to the complaints the people of Israel keep making against you. And Moses spoke to the people of Israel and all their leaders gave him staffs, one for each leader, according to the ancestral tribes, twelve staffs. Aaron's staff was among their staffs. Moses put the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. And the next day Moses went into the tent of the testimony and there he saw that Aaron's staff for the house of Levi had budded. It had sprouted not only buds but flowers and ripe almonds as well. Moses brought out all the staffs from before Adonai to the people of Israel and they looked. And each man took back his staff. And Adonai said to Moses, return Aaron's staff to its place in front of the testimony. It is to be kept there as a sign to the rebels so that they will stop grumbling against me and thus not die. Moses did this. He did as Adonai had ordered him. But the people of Israel said to Moses, Oh no, we're dead men, lost, we're all lost. Whenever anyone approaches the tabernacle of Adonai, he dies. Will we all perish? Well, a plague of some sort breaks out. What we, what it is, we really don't know. Okay? It, it was a divine source, of course, and people started dying immediately. Just as fire pans, the censers, were the instruments used to foment this rebellion in the first place, a fire pan is the instrument used to atone for the people's sin against God. Aaron takes coals from the brazen altar. He puts them onto his fire pan, he places incense on top of it, and then he literally runs 
into the midst of the people to make atonement for their foolish rebellion. But for 14,700 Israelites, it's too late. And since biblical population counts invariably only include males, the total number counting females and children was probably likely closer to 50,000 souls that perished in what must have been a matter of minutes. Now as high priest, Aaron was forbidden to come into contact with the dead. So apparently he carefully avoided all those dead bodies as he kind of wound his way to stand between, it says, the dead and the living. However, his close proximity to so much death meant that he would have become defiled. Now recall that at the beginning of chapter 17, Eleazar, son of Aaron, had been the one chosen to sift through the the, the human remains of all those who had brought unauthorized fire to the tabernacle, presented it to God, in order that Eleazar was to retrieve the fire pans that had contracted holiness, we're told. Now, while touching dead bodies defiled priests, they were not entirely prohibited from coming into contact with the dead, but the high priest was forbidden altogether from touching a corpse. That's why Eleazar had to do it. But the seriousness of this situation within the community of Israel being in rebellion and under the curse of a plague required Aaron himself as their high priest to make the atonement. And so where danger to life is involved, the defilement he suffers in order to save countless thousands of Hebrew lives became necessary. Well, at the end of verse 14, the Torah lays the blame for this whole thing directly on the shoulders of Korah. Now, please note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, it doesn't talk about Satan. Satan, while active on earth since the time of Adam and Eve, wasn't blamed for this, as we of the modern church tend to do too much. It's not that Satan is blameless or harmless. It's that we're not somehow helpless against Satan's temptations. We can resist the devil. We can choose to obey the Lord and not succumb to Lucifer's direction. What Korah fell subject to was not Satan, but to his own evil inclinations. And that is what most of us do most of the time when we sin against the Lord. Take note. If one man can lead thousands astray, as did Korah, how easy it is for one man to lead another man or his own wife or his children away from the Lord. Korah was the anti-mediator. He was the anti-high priest. He was the anti-Moses. And what a terrible fate awaits that man who deceives and rebels and on his account 
Others are led into rebellion, perhaps into eternal destruction. In verse 15, we're told that Aaron's offering of incense works. God relents. The plague ends as quickly as it begins. But the issue that was at the heart of all this rebellion was obviously still not a settled matter. And the issue that started all this was, whom shall be God's set-apart servants? The Levites or some other group of Hebrews? The people needed further persuasion, and so yet another test is devised. The test of the sticks, or the test of the staffs. Now, the process, rather the possessor, of the staff was the possessor of tribal leadership. Therefore, there was only one official stick, or staff, per tribe. And the tribal prince held control over it. The Hebrew word used for stick or rod or staff is mate. That same exact word, mate, is also used to mean tribe. So there is great significance in this test that's about to come in that it's going to use the tribal mate to represent each tribe. Quite literally, what's happening here is that each tribe is going to be set before the Lord for him to indicate which one he shall choose to represent and serve him. Of course, what we can all understand in hindsight is that what was about to occur wasn't a decision, but an affirmation of what had already been decided. So each tribal prince presents his staff to Moses with the tribe's name engraved upon it. And then Aaron presents his staff representing the tribe of Levi. A total of 13 staffs, 13 tribes, are represented. The Lord says he will use these staffs as a means of demonstrating once and for all just who his anointed are. And the staffs are then placed inside the Holy of Holies before, it says, the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, that holds those stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. And the reason is, that above that ark is where the Lord's presence is said to dwell. So the symbolism is that the twelve tribes plus Levi are presenting themselves to God for his will to be displayed. The way the Lord's going to show his will is by causing the mate, the tribal staff of the tribe he chooses to be his servants, to sprout. And of course, this is quite a miracle. Because What's happening is that something that has been long dead, dried up, and hardened is going to be made alive. The staffs were left overnight. And the following morning, Moses entered the tent sanctuary and he found Aaron's staff. You see it right up here before me. They have a beautiful representation of it. That's representing the tribe of Levi in full bloom. It had not only sprouted, but it produced blossoms, even fully formed almonds. Moses took all the staffs outside the tent, asked each tribal leader to come and identify his own staff, and in the process verify that it was indeed Aaron's staff that had budded. Game over. Now it's interesting to see 
the various connections emerge from what went on with Aaron's budding staff and some earlier ordinances of God. The Hebrew word for bud or blossom is tzitz. T-S-I-T-S. Tzitz. It is the same root as used for the word we studied just a couple of chapters earlier, tzitzit, which indicates tassels or fringe. What's even more, tzitz is precisely the same Hebrew word that's used for that gold-plated headband that was attached to the front of the high priest's mitre, his ritual headpiece. This gold plate, this tzitz, had the words holy to Yehovah written upon it. So the buds on the staff, the high priest's golden headplate, and the tassels worn on the corners of all Israelites' garments are all interrelated. In varying degrees, they all represent some aspect of a divinely declared holiness. Now notice as well that the design of the menorah, that holy candelabra of the tabernacle, also incorporated almond blossoms seats in its hammered gold construction. Now there's been a lot of speculation as to why almond blossoms and almonds. The only real answers, if they are correct, come to us from Hebrew tradition. And it is that the almond is the first tree to blossom after the winter. It's the first to come alive after a season of dormancy or death. Further, an almond bears a a, a white blossom. And a white, of course, represents purity and holiness and at times even God himself in the Bible. Well, the tribal leaders finally recognize and at least to some degree accept the position of the Levites and so do the people. But as people do, we also tend to go off the deep end and then make some assumptions out of all this that aren't true. And in verse 27, we see the Israelites make some false assumptions. They now recognize the gravity of their having questioned God and their rebellion against Moses and Aaron and then the priesthood in general. And having witnessed the fire incinerate 250 of their top leaders, the earth open up and swallow entire blocks of tents and people and all their possessions. And then finally this plague erupt that killed Thousands in a matter of minutes, the Israelites are too terrified to even come anywhere near the wilderness tabernacle now. They've seen with their own eyes that an unauthorized person who dares to venture too near to the tent gets destroyed. Yet, how are they going to carry out God's ordained sacrifices in order to atone for their sin or to simply be obedient to him if they can't come to the tabernacle where the brazen altar resides. Quite a quandary. Now obviously, that's not what was being taught here. But the first step of the lesson's been achieved. The people fear God and now believe it's a pretty bad idea to challenge the authority of his earthly agents, Moses and Aaron. Let's move on to the concluding chapter of this three chapter block numbers 18 numbers 18 
Adonai said to Aharon, You, your sons, and your father's family line will be responsible for anything that goes wrong in the sanctuary. You and your sons with you will be responsible for anything wrong in your services as priests. But you are to bring your kinsmen, the tribe of Levi, along with yourselves to work together with you and to help you, you and your sons with you, when you are there before the tent of meeting. They are to be at your disposal and perform all kinds of tasks related to the tent, only they are not to come near the holy furnishings of the or the altar, so that neither they nor you will die. They will work together with you in your duties related to the tent of meeting, whatever the service in the tent may be, but an unauthorized person is not to come near you. You will take charge of all the holy things and the altar, so that there will no longer be anger against the people of Israel. I myself have taken your kinsmen, the Levites, from among the people of Israel, they have been given as a gift to Adonai for you, so that you can perform the service in the tent of meeting. You and your sons with you will exercise your prerogatives and duties as priests in regard to everything having to do with the altar and within the curtain. I entrust the service required of the priests to you. The unauthorized person who tries to perform it is to be put to death. Adonai said to Aaron, I myself have put you in charge of the contributions given to me. Everything consecrated by the people of Israel I have given and set aside for you and your sons. This is a perpetual law. Here's what is to be yours of the especially holy things taken from the fire. Every offering they make, that is, every grain offering, sin offering, guilt offering of theirs that they turn over to me, will be especially holy for you and your sons. You are to eat it in an especially holy place. Every male may eat it. It will be set apart for you. Also, yours is the contribution the people of Israel give in the form of wave offerings. I have given these to you, your sons and your daughters with you. This is a perpetual law. Everyone in your family who is clean may eat of it. All the best of the olive oil, wine and grain, the first portion of what they give to Adonai, I have given it to you. The first produce to turn ripe of all that's in their land, which they bring to Adonai, is to be yours. Every clean person in your family may eat of it. Everything in Israel which has been consecrated unconditionally is to be yours. Everything that comes first out of the womb of all living things which they offer to Adonai, whether human or animal, will be yours. However, the firstborn of a human being you must redeem. And the firstborn of an unclean beast you are to redeem. The sum to be paid for redeeming anyone a month old or over is to be five shekels of silver as you value it using the sanctuary shekel. But the firstborn of an ox, sheep, or goat, you are not to redeem. They are holy. You are to splash their blood against the altar and make their fat go up in smoke as an offering made by fire as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Their meat will be yours, like the breast that is waved in the right thigh. They will be yours. All the contributions of holy things which the people of Israel offer to Adonai, I have given to you to your sons and your daughters with you. This is a perpetual law. It's an eternal covenant of salt.
before Adonai for you and your descendants with you. Adonai said to Aaron, You are not to have any inheritance or portion in their land. I am your portion and inheritance among the people of Israel. To the descendants of Levi, I have given the entire tenth of the produce collected in Israel. It is their inheritance and payment for the service they render in the tent of meeting. From now on, the people of Israel are not to approach the tent of meeting so that they will not bear the consequences of their sin and die. Only the Levites are to perform the service in the tent of meeting and they will be responsible for whatever they do wrong. This is to be a permanent regulation throughout all your generations. They are to have no inheritance among the people of Israel because I have given to the Levites as their inheritance the tenths of the produce which the people of Israel set aside as a gift for Adonai. This is why I have said to them that they will have no inheritance among the people of Israel. So Adonai said to Moses, tell the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tenth of the produce which I have given to you, given you from them as your inheritance, you are to set aside from it a gift to Adonai, a tenth of the tenth. The gift you set aside will be accounted to you as if it were grain from the threshing floor and grape juice from the wine vat. In this way you will set aside a gift for Adonai from all your tenths that you receive from the people of Israel and from these tenths you are to give to Aaron the priest the gift set aside for Adonai. From everything given to you, you are to set aside all that is due Adonai, the best part of it, its holy portion. Therefore you are to tell them, when you set aside from its best part, it will be accounted to the Levites as if it were grain from the threshing floor and grape juice from the wine vat. You may eat it anywhere, you and your households, because it is your payment in return for your service in the tent of meeting. Moreover, because you have set aside from it its best parts, you will not be committing any sin because of it. For you are not to profane the holy things of the people of Israel, or you will die. The Lord's answer to the fear of the Israelite general population to come near to the tabernacle is that it's all on the tribe of Levi to bear the guilt if an unauthorized person encroaches on the sacred tabernacle. It's up to the tribe of Levi to guard the wilderness tabernacle and ensure that only people who are allowed to be there and allowed to perform certain ritual functions, get in. Therefore, if someone gets by them, by accident or on purpose, it's the responsible Levite who will bear the guilt and the punishment. Further, it's the priest's responsibility to keep an eye on the regular Levites, those non-priests that make up the bulk of the tribe of Levi to make sure that they do only what God has authorized them to do with the sanctuary area and no more. So if a Levite fouls up and accidentally or carelessly touches a sacred ritual object, a definite no-no, then it's the priests who are the supervisors of them who who will bear that guilt. Right along with the man who did the wrong. After all, The Levites ought to know better, so they're without excuse. Priests must also monitor other priests. See, the priesthood had a hierarchy. 
all within itself. It wasn't just the high priest at the top of the ladder and then all the other priests as co-equals. Rather, there were higher and lower priests. In fact, some of the ancient Hebrew documents will find a reference in them to the high priests. High priest plural. This doesn't mean the high priest. There were not multiple high priests at the same time. It's referring to the more senior priests who were at the top end of the priest management structure. Okay. In the end, the purpose of this system was for the benefit of the people. Because when the people trespassed on God's holiness, his justice demanded that the nation of Israel feel his wrath. Okay. This entire organizational structure led to the creation of an army of Levite guards to guard over the tabernacle. They had authority to kill on the spot, if necessary. Yet in God's economy, you see, this was an act of mercy designed to protect Israel as a whole from divine punishment. They were a fence. They were like a fence around an electrical substation so that nobody, no foolish person got in and touched it and died. Later in the New Testament, we'll hear of the temple guard and their involvement with the arrest of Jesus. The temple guard were Levites. They were not Roman soldiers, as is sometimes erroneously portrayed. And in verse 6, we're reminded of the all-important principle that not only is the tribe of Levi divided and separated totally away from Israel, but that those common Levites are divided and separated away from the priests. And the purpose of the Levites is to serve the priests, not as house slaves, not as personal servants, but as the manual labor that was needed for tabernacle maintenance and transportation and guard duty, among other things. Now, while while almost all of what follows about sacrifices and offerings has been given to us before, kind of scattered throughout Leviticus, it's now repeated in a more systematic and an orderly way. And it's done this way in response to this series of tragedies that have just occurred, among which were the refusal of the scouts who went in to Canaan to lead the people into the promised land, the man gathering sticks on Sabbath being executed, Korah leading many of the Hebrew leaders into rebellion and thousands of Israelites being destroyed and then this unnamed plague that was brought upon those Israelites who complained that it was unjust for Moses and Aaron to bring about judgment. And several thousand more died as a result of that. All of these things were caused essentially because the people and the leaders did not submit to Moses and Aaron's leadership nor did they accept the role, the special role, of the priesthood and the set-apart nature of the entire tribe of Levi. Therefore, now that those who led that rebellion, along with those who followed, had been purged from Israel, and a proper awe of God and respect of his chosen leadership institutions had been established, the Lord would reiterate what it is that he expected of the priesthood and what the people's response to the authority of the priesthood ought be. So we get a listing of those things offered to sacrifices and tithes from the people that are going to be given to the priests and the Levites as pay. 
Now, a lot of what is spoken here is intended to be instituted not immediately while they're out there in the wilderness, but only after they finally conquered Canaan and set up Canaan and set up residence there. But the gist of it is that of the portion of the offerings to God that the priests are allowed to eat, the priests' families can also eat of it if they're ritually clean. The whole idea here is that while the regular Israelites are expected to grow crops and raise sheep and goats and so on, the tribe of Levi is expected to serve the Lord in the form of ministering to the people. Therefore, in return, the people are to financially support the tribe of Levi. Now remember, when Israel enters the promised land, Levi's only going to get 48 villages to live in. They didn't get any sovereign territory of their own. So they really had little to no means to support themselves. Now we also find, interestingly enough, that priests are exempt, priests are exempt from paying a tithe on what they receive as payment. But the regular Levites are not. Whatever the regular Levites receive as their share of tithe produce and meat and money, they must return a tenth of that to the priesthood as their tithe. And this is because in the end, the priests minister to the Levites just as they minister to the common Israelites. Further, while most of what is given to the priests in the form of food must be eaten on the tabernacle grounds, because it's holy, the food's holy, and the holy items can't be removed from the holy precinct, once the Levites have given back to the priests their tithe, their tenth, of what they have received for pay, they may now remove that remaining portion from the temple area, and they can eat it anywhere. They can take it back home with them and eat it. The act of tithing, follow me, for the Levite, deholified. There's a word for you. Made, made that one up. My wife's going, oh yeah, you do that all the time. The act of tithing for the regular Levites, deholified the remaining portion of their pay. Remember, it was a holy portion that they received. How is it they can take it out of the area? What had been holy becomes just as though it was common food and is given a different status than what was originally food that had been offered to the Lord. The holy status of the food was removed by means of the tithing. Understand, this is a beneficial thing for the Levites because if this process didn't happen they would be in constant violation of removing and eating holy food outside the holy tabernacle area. Now let's finish up today by discussing holiness for, for quite a few minutes, actually. Because too often modern believers have little idea of what holiness actually is. What is holiness? The New Testament asserts the idea of holiness... But it doesn't really explain holiness. Fortunately, the Torah does. 
Now, typically, within the church, holiness is seen primarily today as some kind of pious behavior on our parts. We act special nice. We give some more. We bow our heads and we, we clasp our hands in a certain way. We say, I love you and God bless you to people. We pay our taxes honestly. We pay our full tithe to the church. And while our behavior is important, holiness is much more about our personal status and a condition before God. It's a status bestowed upon us by God and God alone. He sets up the rules and boundaries for holiness. He decides who and what is holy on his terms. Holiness and uncleanness from the standpoint of Torah are closely connected because although they are nearly opposites in status, they behave in a very similar manner. For one thing, both holiness and uncleanness are contagious. More, both holiness and uncleanness can be dangerous. Therefore, the brazen altar, which carries a very high degree of holiness, infects whatever touches it with holiness. The meat offered on the brazen altar, itself now holy, transmits its holiness now to the vessel it's cooked in. Thus metal pots have to be thoroughly cleaned after cooking sacrificed meat. And clay pots have to be destroyed because it's impossible to scour the holiness out of a porous clay material. The danger here is of an inadvertent transfer of holiness from the holy meat to the pot and then to whatever is next cooked in that pot. It's real. After Aaron has finished his ritual duties and takes off his high priest garments, he must wash himself. Or the holiness of the high priest garment that covered Aaron's skin is liable to be transmitted to the common garment that Aaron now puts on to to leave. Holiness is dangerous if it's acquired by someone who's not authorized to possess it. Priests cannot perform their duties unless they're in a clean state, lest they touch a holy device and defile it with their uncleanness. In our just finished series of these rebellion stories, we find unauthorized people, meaning people whom God had not anointed with a special holiness, we find them uh, uh, offering unauthorized incense in a holy place to a holy God. They're destroyed. Because A, they disobeyed and encroached on holy ground, and B, they acquired holiness due to their nearness to God that they had no business acquiring. Yet priests who are authorized to have this special holiness by God can offer incense in a holy place to a holy God safely. The principle is that whatever is holy must never be used for a common purpose in a common place. 
Therefore, whatever is made holy must stay within the holy precinct of the tabernacle. Conversely, whatever is common must never be offered to God, nor brought into a holy place, or it will acquire holiness, and then it will have to be destroyed because it was never meant to be holy. When those firepans of Korah and his cohorts were presented to God in an unauthorized manner, what happened to them? It says they acquired holiness because of their nearness to God. Mere proximity. So in this case, rather than having the firepans destroyed, God chose to have those firepans melted down to form a protective lid for the altar. As a sign, a warning to Israel about what happens. He permanently kept that holy metal inside the holy precinct. Holiness is dangerous. Wield it carefully, believers. The coals used for the fire pans, those unauthorized fire pans that those 250 brought, had also contracted holiness. The solution here, though, was that those coals were to be scattered away from the tabernacle and not used at all for anything. They could not be used to start a new fire. They had to be done away with. Had these coals been used to start a new fire, the coals from that new fire would have contracted an unauthorized holiness. Listen to Ezekiel. I know this is hard. This is a hard teaching. Listen to Ezekiel talk about holiness. In Ezekiel 46.20 And he said to me, this is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering in the sin offering and where they shall bake the grain offering, follow this, in order that they may not bring them out into the outer court to transmit holiness to the people. Not everyone was created for holiness. Not everyone was created for the same degree of holiness. And those who were not created for holiness aren't entitled to it. Those who were entitled only to a certain level of holiness could not accidentally be allowed to receive more. Therefore, holiness had to be carefully protected and guarded. Here's the thing, you see. Holiness is a very serious and complex matter. There are literally scores of references to the holiness of the believer in the New Testament. Yet for some reason, we tend to take notice of the parts that sound nice, that we really like, and we allegorize or spiritualize the rest away. Or just as problematically, we read the words about it, but we don't ever bother to inquire what they mean. Romans 11.6 And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. See, Paul makes an assertion that if a piece of a batch of dough is holy, then the entire batch is holy also. And if the root of a tree is holy, then the branches attached to that tree are If we read further in Romans, even branches that have been grafted into that tree, well, they're also holy. Well, that's all well and good. 
But by what God principle does the batch of dough and the branches of the tree become holy just because a bit of the dough and a root of the tree is holy? Paul doesn't even bother to explain this assertion. That's because a good portion of his audience was Jews. They well understood the Torah principle that holiness and uncleanness is transmitted by means of contact. It's just an immutable spiritual law. Acts 7.33 But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place you at which you are standing is holy ground. See, this New Testament passage recalls Moses standing before the Lord, where? At the burning bush, that's right. Moses is told to remove his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. Why? Is it because it's a sign of respect to remove your shoes? Perhaps, but that's not the chief concern. No, rather the issue of removing his sandals is because the holiness of the holy ground Moses stood upon would have transferred to his sandals. And then that holiness would have been transmitted to whatever those sandals contacted wherever Moses walked. That's the law of holiness. And that's why. Zechariah 14.21 And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. And all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts that day. What in the world does this mean? Well, it all has to do with what happens when you cook sacrificed meat in a cooking pot. The pot becomes holy because of the transference of holiness to the pot from the holy meat. And then the pot has to be cleaned or broken so that whatever else is cooked in it doesn't accidentally have holiness transmitted to it. But here... This is speaking of a time in the future when holiness is universal among Israel. And every Israelite who uses that pot is entitled to holiness. So it's okay if that holiness transfers from the pot to other food to another Israelite from the foods to a person who eats it because the danger is gone. They're all authorized to have holiness. You beginning to get the picture? Holiness has a whole universe of aspects that we have known nothing about because we haven't studied the foundational part of God's Word. Therefore, we get these skewed ideas of what seem to be difficult New Testament passages. The concept of transmissible holiness and uncleanness is behind the reason that Paul tells men, males, not to join ourselves to prostitutes. Why? Because holiness can be transmitted in the joining of a holy male to an unholy female, or vice versa. And just as important, because the uncleanness of a prostitute can be transmitted to the holy male. And therefore, that uncleanness defiles God's holiness that's in him. Plus, it violates the principle of shanets, the principle of illegal mixtures. 
This even seems to hold true for married couples to some unexplained degree. Listen to this New Testament passage from 1 Corinthians 7.13. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, meaning separated for God, made holy through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean. But now they're holy. Hmm. Here's an example of another one of those really difficult sayings of Paul. Sayings that even the Apostle Peter said were so hard to understand. Paul makes yet another assertion in this passage, and again with no explanation, which leads me to believe that there was some underlying and understood Torah principle that he was applying to this situation, but something that was also not understood outside of Hebrew society. Paul was in Corinth when he spoke this, a Gentile nation, and Hebrew, uh, rather Gentiles, have a very hard time ferreting out commonly known principles that were part of a Hebrew society, but are pretty much unknown to Gentiles. The bottom line and end point of this passage is that if an unbeliever marries a believer, or if two unbelievers marry and then later one becomes a believer, in either case, God accepts the marriage as legal in his eyes. It's a legal marriage. Thus, all children born from the union would be legitimate, not unclean mamzer, bastards. Okay. Thus, there is no legal requirement from God that such a marriage of a believer and a non-believer be ended. Okay. The problem is that it would have been awfully easy for Paul to just say this. That in this situation, God sees the marriage of a believer and an unbeliever as legal. But you know, he didn't. Instead, he invoked some understood principle, at least understood to him, as a means to explain it. And that the principle was that the, unbe- that the believing spouse united with the unbeliever conferred sanctification upon the unbeliever. Thus, for that reason, the marriage was legal and the righteous believer would not lose his righteousness before God because they were united in marriage to an unbeliever. That's what's going on here. But what biblical principle is at play under which the unbelieving husband is made holy by means of his marriage to the believing wife? How are the unclean offspring, offspring of this marriage made holy? Well, first Paul says that this is an authorized union between a man and a woman. That is, this is a marriage, a husband and a wife who become as one flesh in the manner God prescribed. Now, while it's strongly recommended against, it's not necessarily a sin for a believer to marry an unbeliever. And so one possible explanation of why this statement about the sanctification of one spouse being conferred upon the other is possible in the eyes of Paul, a rabbi thoroughly trained in the law, is that he knows that perhaps the holiness of the believing spout will be transmitted to the other through natural and God-approved contact. 
in this con- context, the obvious context of this meeting, sexual intercourse. And the resulting children, a biological product of this contact, may also contract that holiness. And Paul apparently sees this kind of transmission of holiness as a blessing and not a danger. Now, there is one other possibility as to why Paul believes that this holiness of a believing spouse somehow attaches to the unbelieving one and then is further transmitted to their offspring. I'm going to need all your concentration towards me. I know it's getting late at this moment, if you would, partly because this is complex and partly because it's my opinion that this is the better explanation of this very strange and startling principle that Paul has just spoken about. We have to go back to our study of tzitzit to understand it. Tzitzit are tassels that employ an exception to a rule. They are made of otherwise of an otherwise illicit mixture of wool and linen. Yet, they are used to remind people of God's holy commandments and God's command, and God therefore commands his people to wear tzitzit. Some parts of priestly garments contained shawnets, an illicit mixture, and this too was actually God ordained. Now, interestingly, we find that by wearing this mixture of fabrics in the form of a tzitzit, it actually confers, we're told, a certain measure of holiness upon the wearer. In fact, it was the new practice, follow me again, it was this new practice of wearing tzitzit that led Korah to tell Moses that because of that, all of Israel was now holy, not just Moses, Aaron, and the priesthood. Essentially, the product of the mixture of illicit materials in the case of the tzitzit is that some level of holiness is conferred upon the wearer. Now, here we find a similar thing in Paul's example of marriage. The examples Paul gives are essentially an illicit mixture of an unbeliever binding to a believer. But this mixture is acceptable to God if it occurs within the God-ordained institution of human binding that we call marriage. The marriage is still shanets, a mixture that's not supposed to occur in God's eyes, but the product of it is a legal union. Both spouses attaining a measure of holiness and therefore the children being accepted by God as clean and legitimate. Now I'm sure this brief discussion on holiness brings as many answers and and questions as answers and, and, and Lord knows I don't have all the answers to all the inscrutable realities of what the full scope of holiness is. But at the least, I hope you go away tonight seeing that holiness is a far greater matter than our outward pious behaviors or saying nice things. Okay? And that there are serious spiritual consequences when we misuse 
and abuse that holy status that we have been granted as a result of our trust in Yeshua HaMashiach. So we must guard and protect that holiness that has been so graciously granted to us through our Messiah with all of our mind, our soul, and our strength. That's all for tonight.